there was another planet and its people were super, super aggro. Sometimes I forget that you know what video games are. Because he said aggro, I'm like, does she mean? I'm like, oh, yeah, she did use it kind of correctly. (laughs) I am a multifaceted being of dimensions. There's layers here, people. Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast. It's me, your host, Maria, and today with me, neither of my handsome bitches, nay, (laughs) today, it is the one, the only... Mr. Sapphire, Gina, joining me for just the two of us talking about a book. What is that book today, Gina? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Technically the first trilogy, which is the only ones that count. Yeah, the, fir- the first three. Uh, who Who is the author? Douglas Adams? Adam? Yep. <laughs> so we're doing this uh, partially, partially because we just need to record more to have a bigger, like backlog um but also because gina wanted to discuss this book and these book series with me uh so we are doing it just the two of us um i have never read these before i had watched the movie before gina has a very different relationship to these books gina extrapolate right so this is actually one of the books that i read as a child um foundational childhood uh series actually um, went to Catholic school. So we can consider this uh, one of our nostalgia one of reads? Our, yes. yes uh, can. Nostalgia read! And it, perfect. Okay, continue. Sorry. So that was actually uh, my way of rebelling against Catholic school because they caught me reading the books. They flipped through it, saw all the curse words and other like grown up language, and like, you can't read this. So I would instead just bring other books, hide it inside the book, and read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's also, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of those books that seems very superfluous in comedy and just all over the top, doesn't really mean much. But when I say foundational, I mean, like, some of the points behind the ideology of some of the uh, quotes in the first three books in particular has literally just, like, defined some of my attitudes about things about life, so... I'm fully aware that you are not going to agree with me about a lot of things, and that's okay. As far as the, like, um, this book has a lot of depth, and this author is highly intelligent, and this book is mainly commentary. It is commentary on humanity as a whole. It is a uh, commentary on our bureaucratic systems, ideas, and, like, it is, it's just pure comedy. Uh, It's pure commentary masquerading as um, comedy in the way that British like dry humor comedy and and specifically absurdism which I have a very like positive relationship with um I did talk to Gina a bit about this beforehand and the ways in which like all of that stuff exists and is amazing but how as a reading experience it's not like a perfect one for me And I realized after thinking about it, because I had to read it on a time limit for this podcast, and I will argue... That's the reason? I think so, because I made a point, and we'll go into this, but really quick before I go into, like, my whole feelings uh, about it, I... My first experience with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was at my father's house. He kept it on the back of the toilet. (laughs) Like, and I remember... You know, I think... I, I think my father-in-law does that too. And I just on occasion, I think I see it there. And and I just remember like 
sitting on the toilet at my dad's house and then being like, what's back here? It was Hitchhiker's Guide. And I remember, I just remember the little green alien on the front being, and then the don't panic. And I, I was like, what the f*** is this? And I remember trying to, like, reading the blurb on the back. And I was like, this just makes no sense. And at the time, I was very anti-sci-fi. I didn't come to appreciate sci-fi as a genre until my 20s, especially mid-20s uh, and up. But prior to that, it was primarily fantasy. And so this, like, weird... So about the same time that you met me is when you started appreciating sci-fi. Yeah, actually. And, and honestly, it was really... Um, I dated this one guy who a lot of his favorite books were sci-fi. And I just read them because he had... I, he was... Uh, like smart dude and he said they were really good so remember when i was reading the three body problem yep that was like two years into me like getting into sci-fi a lot and since then like will i will say that i read more sci-fi than between katie will and i i definitely read the most um and uh so it's really something and part of it is like i didn't grow up with like star trek which i think is a lot of uh ways people get into sci-fi i grew up with star wars star wars isn't sci-fi it's fantasy (laughs) in space that's it i will take no argument it is wizards with laser swords like that's it it is not it is not they're completely they're completely different philosophies too like you have fantasy genre Mm -hmm. and you're right, because it is just fantasy in space. Like, it has a completely different story arc than what typical sci-fi does. So it's not the same. Yeah, and also, one of the things that uh, differentiates for me sci-fi from fantasy is if you took the sci-fi, like, something that where it's just told in space or told in the future is not necessarily sci-fi. But if the sci-fi elements, if it's exploring how technology or a point in the future affects humanity as a whole, and the the sci-fi elements are integral to the story, like you literally could tell the Star Wars story exactly, but just make it a fantasy setting. Nothing about that story would change by just taking them and making them just normal swords and just having like Yoda be an old man in a swamp. He could be an old How wrinkly much of elf. This is Will gonna have to cut out because you're gonna get so much hate. I don't think so. I think people will agree because, like, I love the story, but it's just it is. It's not like it doesn't have to be a spaceship. It can just be a ship <laughs> on the water, and like yeah. it's the story beats, and that's what I mean. The story beats. Obviously, some things would change, but the story beats and the arc wouldn't. You cannot tell Star Trek as a story. No. Without, because it's literally going to other planets. Like, the whole point of it is space exploration. You can't tell a space exploration story in a fantasy setting. You can't tell a meeting different galaxies, cultures on different planets story in in a fantasy setting. It's just not going to work. And it's the technology is integral to the actual story. Um, And so, all that to say... I was a Star Wars kid, and and uh, and y- so I went fantasy route. And so I'm sure if you're a Star Trek, and this is a theory, I'm sure there's a lot of Star Wars people who never got into Star Trek but still ended up deep into uh, fantasy or into uh, sci-fi. But I just like I think Star Trek is a gateway drug to a lot of <laughs> sci-fi. Um, and I would agree with that. And I just didn't have it at all. So like literally, there was I think the very first sci-fi book. That was like an actual sci-fi book I read was a John Scalzi book. And it's because I found his blog, you know, like that, that was it. It it wasn't because I went out. Even that led you into red shirts. Yeah, 
Exactly, which is a very backwards way to get introduced to the concept of a red shirt on Star Trek. That was my initial experience with Hitchhiker's Guide, which is, again, young girl being like, what is this weird-ass book? And and it's funny because I would have enjoyed it back then if I had actually read it because I grew up in my dad's house watching a lot of British TV shows, like and and specific specifically the more absurd British comedies like Blackadder and Faulty Towers, um, which are it's just all that humor and that like intelligent humor where it's like there's a surface level where you can take something and then there's the thing they're actually commenting on. I'm assuming that you know this from your background research. Uh, History of the Galaxy actually started as Doctor the, um, Who. Yeah. What? Uh, a lot of the concepts no, came um, from Doctor the, Who rewrites. Possibly, but what I was actually saying, it was a radio telenovel yes. beforehand. Yes, it was it just is. a whole bunch of stories on British airwaves. Yeah, so Will was the one who told me that it started because I saw when I went to buy the Audible because I didn't read these. I listened to them. I argue that I'm. It's you need to read them for some of the things to work because audio-wise, some of the words that sound like other things, you just they sound exactly the same, but when you read them, they look different. So like gin and tonics, that whole bit about how gin and tonics, Uh, they're just saying gin and tonics the whole time, but I had to- Oh, you probably also didn't get the whole thing about cricket either. I I did. I understood that it was probably spelled differently, but I literally had to go and look up some, like I looked up a bunch of the words in the book to see how they were spelled. And like, I didn't guess that the cricket planet was spelled the way it was. Um, And so there's a bunch of little things like that. So this might actually be a series that just would be best read. And the thing is, it's hysterical as an audiobook and the the quality of the audiobooks are fantastic. But anyway, when I first was getting the audiobook, I saw the radio play and I was like, maybe I'll listen to that. And Will was like, actually, that's the original. Like that's where it started. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the concepts, including the whole evil, evil cricket planet came from him writing a doctor who movie like that that was supposed to be a movie version of doctor who and it was a concept and it ended up getting scrapped and there's a couple of other things in the series that came from doctor like inspired as doctor who ideas that he then put into his uh books which is hysterical the fact that they let me tell you doctor who had a real chokehold on british sci-fi for for a really long time and this is this completely makes sense i did not know that part about the doctor who thing right i i discovered it today um because i was looking at some stuff just to get some other knowledge before going into this um also might i say i think we're killing it so far we've talked about like genres we've talked about so many topics in the last 12 minutes i know i think we're doing so good we haven't talked a ton about the actual book yet but we've not talked about the book at all other than the fact that it exists we're getting there um but anyway uh so i yeah that, that was my experience coming into this and also knowing like gina told me uh i we read the i read the first one we were going to do a video and then Gina was like, most of my comments are about the second and the third one. And I was like, well, I have not even just that. Like you did not have a great experience with just the first just one. The first on one. Yes. Uh, and I'm like, Oh no, in order for you to understand any of the reasons why I love this series as much as I do, you need a little bit more context. And I'll, I'll make again. I think I finally put my finger on why. Uh, yeah. So I, I hadn't like, it was, it's good and it's funny, but it just, there's some things that were missing for me, especially when I was reading the first one, the second and the third one have more of those things that I'll comment on. And then I, Gina was like, I was like, should I just read the second and third? one and Gina was like yes 
please read the second and third one. She's like, I wrote six pages worth of commentary <laughs> about these. And even when I typed it up, so like that was my rough draft. And then when I typed it up, it still was like five and a little piece of it. It's long. <laughs> she wrote some long commentary going into different uh, pieces of this book. So I knew like going into the video that it, we would probably have a lot to say. And especially now that I've had a little bit of time to digest uh, and think about it. Um, how did you reread the books for this? Did you just skim? How did we prepare for this video? So interestingly enough, we were supposed to do this like two months ago. Earlier this year, I had uh, started rereading Hitchhiker's Guys of the Galaxy. I got through the first three books, um, probably finished the third one, started on the fourth one around like late April or so. So like at that point, it's like, ah, we basically like at the time I just reread them you were like oh let's just do this we'll target it in like three weeks from now it'll be great and I'm like ah I don't need to reread anything and then as the months go by and I'm just procrastination brain I'm like I'm just gonna go through all my thought processes like get through the wiki like get through the wikipedia just to make sure I'm not missing any points like I read the I read this series so many times that like I don't really need it to reread it again yeah i don't need to reread the the same three books twice in one year in order to talk about no the reread you did at the beginning of this year what was there any differences for you compared to other rereads was it just like a pleasurable experience are you picking up as you've gotten older any things about the book series so interestingly enough um i am not necessarily picking up anything that i missed in most in the way that most people probably mean that you don't like how distant you are from the characters for many reasons um this read read through that i did this year because i, I realized a couple of things about myself in the last like two years i actually understood character motivation for the first time ever <laughs> for some <laughs> of it. which is funny because like so much of it is like there's not really any real motivation that's driven <laughs> my logic which is why it always just like was over my head so now i'm like oh you oh right you actually care about her oh okay like I always knew that they were kind of a couple but I'm also like but she doesn't matter you know it's funny because I actually I I remember in book two being like god Zaphod likes Trillian way more than he realizes he does and so when he had that <laughs> whole experience in book three I was like haha motherfucker you got it I was talking about Arthur and her though but uh, I I knew Arthur had a thing for her, like, the whole time. Like, it just... I mean, like, I, I knew. I just was like, is it just because she's the last human? Like, is there actually anything that matters about her? Because, like, she's a very one-dimensional character. She... It's funny, because Trillian is one of the things that I wish could have been a little bit more expanded upon. I liked her... Um, for me, she kind of felt like the... In in a really subtle way, like, the Technobabble character. You know, like, how in a lot of sci-fi, there's mm -hmm. that one character, like, who's just oh, yeah. like, oh, yeah, so this thing that... And she... And it's she, so ironic that that's not the android in this one. Exactly! That it's not the android, and that the hyper-emotional, like, character is the android, and is yep. not the woman on board. Um, and so, like, it's, it's fantastic, and I really like Trillian, but for me, it, like, it always... Uh, because uh, the whole idea that like Zaphod stole uh, Trillian from Arthur from that party, and I was just like, oh, Arthur, stop simping. It's fine. Like, just move on. She's she's moved on. She doesn't even call herself the same name. You might not want to read books four and five. Why? Book four is a very strong deviation from the other three. It is basically purely a romance. The novel between Trillian and, and Arthur, but like Trillian in a different life. 
Oh, in a different life? As long as it's not this. Well, it's a parallel. It, 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 it is the same, but it's like, so like, because like, okay, so like the dolphins bring back the earth kind of thing. And I, it gets interesting. I don't remember much of book four because the last time I read book four, because remember, I stopped right when I started book four this year. Yeah. Last time I read book four was probably like seven years ago. And romance I have no memory That's of it. That's <laughs> the last thing I want out of this series. For me, I I was okay with Zaphod being like, and then he realized he cared for Trillian more than he thought. And Trillian being like, he finally realized how much he cared about me. And I was like, that's fine. I ship it. Just go like, that, that's it. That's as much romance as I want out of these books ever. It, it's funny. The second two books are voiced by Martin Freeman, who is the person that plays Arthur in the movie. Interesting. Yeah. And he does a great job. Job. His Zaphod, a lot of people hated. I read on the comments. But I fucking loved it. He was so good. Like, and it made me like Zaphod more than, like, movie Zaphod than the first book. Because the first book is uh, narrated by Stephen Fry, who is flippin' excellent. But his Zaphod is much more like bombastic like entitled british guy um and freeman's zaphod is just excellent but anyway um read read the actual books if if you want to listen to the audiobooks after you've read the actual books once go ahead and do that would not recommend just going into this thing off audiobooks i had to re i had to re-listen to a lot of stuff because this author does this thing where like you're in the middle of a scene you're following a plot line you're like okay good i'm following and then all of a sudden he's like and now we're all the way over here doing something completely unrelated to everything we've done up, up to this point and you're just like did i miss something like did, well, I mean, did i space literally out does that though because it'll be one paragraph of like talking about like oh yes this is what's going on in the heart of gold and then it's like the next par- paragraph meanwhile there's a bowl of petunias falling towards a planet like Completely. But, but sometimes not even a meanwhile. Just all of a sudden, it's talking about, like, the definition of this one word and how that actually, yes. like, yes. and so as... Because a, it's important context. It doesn't seem like it, but it actually is important context. It is important context, but as a listener, you always think... Always for when, like, it's always important context for, like, 40 chapters from now. Like, somewhere between two chapters and three books later is important context. But it's hysterical because as a listener, you're suddenly, you're just, like, in the gym going, like, did I space out? We were just we were just there doing this thing, and then you re-listen to it, and you're like, no, 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 I didn't space out. The book just did that, and it happened to me so many times where I just had to re-listen. And also because sometimes they're doing dialogue, and Freeman's reading it really fast, and I'm just like, yo, 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 guys, <laughs> I need to give that another listen. So, would not recommend audiobook for your first time. Go go in with the actual book. My experience reading these books. I preferred two and three. I think three is my favorite overall. Though there's parts of two I really enjoyed. Um, for me, especially with the first book, I found, because like, like I mentioned, I really like the dry kind of absurdist British comedy a la Monty Python, Faulty Towers, that whole genre. But for me, as a lot of the times what makes that work um and absurdist comedy in general work is when there's a something I can connect to on an emotional level whether that's setting whether that's stakes whether that's the characters in like what their hat what's happening to them emotionally I can sympathize with and especially in the first book a lot of what is happening even when it is technically serious 
the book never treats it as such. And so like a character can be having like an emotional reckoning. Characters die and you're just like, Goodbye. No reason as to why you care that they died. And sometimes the characters are having negative reactions to things. But again, it's told in that funny distance way. So you're not... So especially in book one, there was like a... a too much of a distance where I was struggling to like care enough about something. Uh, again, I still enjoyed it. Part of the issue, because this happened a little bit, it was less about caring about something. But in the second and third book, what I realized is... This book is really bad to just have to listen to on a deadline. I think this book does best if you listen to it in short little bits, you pick it up and you put it down as things like naturally like, like oh, we're going to follow Zaphod for a while while he is on a weird beach planet at the headquarters of uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and he needs to go talk to Zarni Whoop. Uh, sure. And then when this stuff with him and Zarni Whoop ends and we cut to another scene, you can just put it down and like digest and walk away. Um, and I realized, I think it's good toilet reading. I think dads put it on the back of the toilet because it's good in small doses. And then you think about what you read, you digest it, and then you come back for more. I don't think trying to binge this series in a close period very quickly is where it's strong suits lay. Because my problem was I would listen to something. We would tr switch to a different uh, thing. I had just gone to the point where I cared. So like I found in book two, I really liked Zaphod way more than I did in book one, way more. And especially in that first part where we're following him a lot. And that whole thing was like the ship with the like people who kept just waking up and screaming because the ship one was <laughs> fantastic that's exactly what i was looking for like give me some i need some darkness that's what it is i need some actual darkness to like some stakes when when things are this absurd i need the one saying that really yes it's wow. true that's i need something grim so the idea of like a bunch of people just living specifically that they experience that in this alternate pocket dimensions just so zaphod could connect with zarni whoop incredible incredible and then we switch to another thing that's happening with other characters and i i found myself having a hard time despite how engaged i'd been picking the book back up and i think part of that is it's good in small doses and digesting it and i just had to like ram my way through it and so i think i would have enjoyed it more had i read it just for pleasure in a slower format um and, like, had time to, like, talk with you about the individual sections and what was happening. I think that would have been a little bit better for me. Because uh, books two and three definitely have more of the dark. Like, like there's some stuff where you're like, holy fucking shit. Like, the the um, Neanderthals going extinct slowly and just mm -hmm. dying. Ah, oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Not to mention the whole, like, Arthur has killed every iteration of that one person. Also, I'm terrible with the names because I have never listened to it. And I have this really bad habit of if a name is too long, I read the first three letters and skip the rest of it. I'm like, it sounds something like this, <laughs> like Moraine from Wheel of Time. Mm -hmm. Like for the longest time I'm like, I was just like, more. more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Agrigar is his name. Yeah, no, that was an excellent, incredible scene. But like book one doesn't have any of that darkness. 
Like everything is played for laughs. There's never, it's like, there's these moments where Adams just peels back the comedy and is like, look at the horror beneath the surface. And that's book two and three, baby. We got lots of horror for you. The idea of a robot. Oh, not to mention the restaurant at the end of the universe with the cow. Excellent. Fucking incredible. Or like the, the, the prophet coming and like the people being like, oh, finally we get to hear your words. And then the prophet, like there's a bunch of things that happen that are so much more impactful on an emotional level for me in books two and three that made them like, I have a hard time remembering all the stuff that happened in book one because so much of it was just played for comedy. Now, again, there's a lot of stuff beneath the surface. What it's saying about philosophers, philosophy as a whole. Technology, too. Uh, William, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, me and Katie were recording at the same time, so I'm checking in to make sure that like everything's going okay here. There are no tech issues. No, no tech issues. We are doing very well. We're 29 minutes in. We've, we have covered so much shit. <laughs> We've covered fantasy versus sci-fi, Star okay. Wars versus Star Trek as fantasy versus sci-fi. That is actually an excellent point. I've talked before about that. Yes, Star Trek is sci-fi, Star Wars is fantasy, fantasy with lasers. Did you ever end up listening to the audio, the uh, radio play version, by the I way? I didn't. Gina mentioned it, uh, though, that like that's I the original version. Either, though. I, I just didn't have time. Oh, uh-huh. So that's the thing about literary criticism is that you have to make time in your life to be an intellectual and <laughs> otherwise you're just a blog. I'm booting him life. out, guys. I'm just, I'm going to get rid of him. <laughs> We're right, just going to throw him. <laughs> bye, Will. Oh, yeah, there's just so much more of, like, I have a hard time remembering book one because it just, it doesn't have as many of those. I don't know if it has any of those dark moments, like, at all. I mean, a little bit, like, so there is a scene at the very beginning um, where they're all in the diner and they're like, ah, oh, the world's going to end. What are we supposed to do? And just that commentary about how it's like all the different like ideas about like, oh, you're supposed to put a bag over your head to, in order to like not die in the apocalypse or something like that. Just that little bit of chaos and like at one point they all just like gave up. They were just like, I guess we're just going to die and that's okay. Like that's about as dark as the first one gets. That's it. And it's literally one of the first scenes. But, like, after... Because there's a lot of things that are incredible concepts. But they just don't... Like, he... Again, he doesn't do that peel back and, like, look at the darkness under the... Like, he doesn't do that as much in book one. And that's what made book two and three really shine for me. And, like, the moments I love the most out of those are those moments. Um, so... Uh, do you want to do a light plot retelling of what happened or just discuss the ideas in some sort of chronological order uh, as we go? Me, chronological with this series is going to be a disaster. So I recommend that you do whichever one you prefer. So I'll do a really, really as brief as I can plot uh, recap. Book one is... Th there's this guy named Arthur Dent. He's just a normal human guy. His... his it's it's the movie if you've seen the movie but his his house is gonna get uh destroyed for uh an expressway and then his friend who he's been friend with for years turns out to be an alien and is like the actual world is gonna end and get destroyed also for an expressway, for an expressway. um and it, there's uh, in this beginning portion there's a lot of really fun stuff about bureaucracy and the like uselessness of bureaucracy i feel a lot of this i have an hoa election uh, happening in my neighborhood right now and there's like two opposing factions that are like duking it out and I just couldn't I just couldn't help but think of like the inan the inanity of bureaucracy and tiny little 
fake government bodies. Um, uh, and it's hysterical because the whole reason Earth doesn't know about the expressway is the same reason Arthur didn't know about his expressway that was going to demolish his house. And it's the the idea that like bureaucracy exists and all like it just it, inescapable and always incapable of actually doing anything properly. Like just excellent. But anyway, so he ends up going into space with his friend and he hitchhikes. Uh, the conceit of the book slash book series is there's a book called the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, which is the number one pop publication in the world in the, in the galaxy N narrowly pushing out another book whose name I forgot because it was slightly less expensive and had don't panic written in nice friendly letters on the front of it. Glad well, you make a point to point that out. <laughs> yes. um, and it is just how to hitchhike throughout the galaxy. I would like to say that there is a little tiny baby plot hole in the book series. And it is this in the first book, Ford is doing research for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then it never comes up ever again. It does. You can't just not bring it up for two, like, two whole books. <laughs> it does. It, oh, so I'll, I'll tell you, like, um, so he does a whole bunch of research for the, for about the Earth and everything like that, and he submits his research, and in version two, the entry for Earth is amended with the word, so it said harmless originally. Ford's edition summarizes into it now reads mostly harmless that's in book one that he finds or at the beginning of book two it never comes up again ever in the other books it, it like in the rest of two and three it never comes up that happens either at the end of book one or very very early in book two well, i think it's i think it's mentioned that that happens but it actually expand, expands upon it in book four i think it just went nowhere and i was like is he still doing it is he done now like i also feel like ford goes through a bit of a personality change between books one and book three specifically and i don't know if it's because he was stuck on a planet for a while um uh, but anyway uh so arthur goes he's on a vogon ship vogons are bureaucratic Basically, the point of this is there's a this guy named Zaphod Beetlebrox. He's the president of the universe. Uh, he's, he shouldn't be. He's kind of dumb and impulsive. But that's the kind of people they like to be president. But is he? There's a funny commentary which felt very apropos to, the, to, to some things happening lately in just across the global politics, which is the idea that politicians are just supposed to be big personalities that distract you from actual stuff that's happening and they're just supposed to say inflammatory things and so you focus on that instead of the actual things that are going on um apropos uh and zaphod as president decides to steal this new fancy fangled ship called the, the heart, heart of gold. yeah the heart of gold and it's an improbability drive spaceship he's trying to do something he doesn't exactly know what he's going to try to do just yet him and his Gal Pal Trillion end up picking up Arthur and uh, Ford while they're hitchhiking. And then this whole thing, they end up going to this place called Magrathia, which is a planet that used to build other planets. It was a big luxury item. Like if you wanted a custom built, like, like, like designer babies, um, but designer planets. And then the galaxy got too broke. The universe got too broke to support Magrathia. So they went to sleep for a while, but he's going to Magrathia 
Why does he go to Magrathia? So he goes to Magrathia because he just thinks that he should go to Magrathia. Okay, that's. I thought that's why he goes to Magrathia. Yeah. I thought it was just because he was like, I have to go there. Them being in Magrathia is important for plot reasons for other characters. And basically, they get to Magrathia. So... I don't know how much detail to go into because I really want to talk about the petunia, the bowl of petunias and the whale. Technically, actually, that was before Magrathia because that happened as they were picking him up from the... No, no. It's as they're arriving on Magrathia because it's Magrathia's defense uh, bullets. Missiles. Missiles coming at them and the whale carcass hits, lands Mm -hmm. on Magrathia. So it's literally... Petunia just says not again. (laughs) That entire commentary from the whale, though. That was... Heckin' excellent. It's so good. But anyway, some missiles get turned into a bowl of petunias. Anyone who has not read these books is going to be so confused by us because we're just referencing things and saying nothing. It's so good. Uh, Just just do yourself the favor and read it. But um, they need to get on this planet Magrathia. It has a defense mechanism, even though everybody on the planet's been asleep for a while. Uh, Zaphod, because he's kind of dumb. Or is he? Uh, Is like, no, we're going to go anyway. And then the missiles come at them gets turned into a whale and a bowl of petunias. They get to the planet, Zaphod, Trillian, and uh, Ford go off to do exploring. And Arthur is left with a character we haven't mentioned, which is a robot named Marvin, who is a very depressed, very depressed robot. So the problem with Marvin is that he's so, like, he's so... Very, very intelligent that he comes into that problem of like the more intelligent you are, the more depressed that you get. About the state but of But Marvin is just such a good character though. And he's such a good friend. You wouldn't think it, but just he's such a strong, like he is your ride or die of like he will literally outpace like uh Rory from Doctor Who. Like he waits millennia for these people. <laughs> and he saves them so many flipping times mm-hmm. like even just in this book he has like the first time he does like uh, n- n- the, not that this one was intentional none of them were intentional actually I think some of the ones with Zaphod were in book three he might have been like listening to like he might have like been doing something Zaphod said for an indefinite amount of time but like none of them were like ah yes I will I Do care this. about you all so <laughs> I'm going to like none of it was like that so Marvin and Arthur are left uh, by the ship while everybody else goes off looking for stuff. And Arthur ends up meeting this guy named Slotty Bartfarts. It's one hell of a name. I'm just going to call him Slarty from now on. It's actually Slarty Bartfart. There's no S at the end. But anyway, we're just going to call him Slarty. And Slarty is like this old guy and he's a Magrathian. And he's basically like, oh, we finally get to wake up after I think like 2 million years. It's a while. They've been sleeping for a real long time. And he's like, we're doing one last job. We've been hired uh, by someone to rebuild the earth. And Arthur's like, you're rebuilding the earth? What? And then he's like, yeah, for mice. There was a previous note that Trillian, who used to be a someone named Trisha McMillan. It's McMillan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trisha McMillan on Earth took two mice on the spaceship with her and Zaphod when Zaphod whisked her off back in the day. Um, and her mice went missing. And he's like, yeah, the mice, the most intelligent species. And Arthur's like, oh, I see. He was like, that has been doing experiments on you for years. And Arthur's like, I see where the misunderstanding came from. We have been doing experiments on them for years. And Slarty Bartford is like, no, 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 no. They were doing it to you, and they just made you think you were in control. And Arthur's like, oh, man, shit, you're right. That could be possible. And basically, the planet Earth is caught up in a great cons- in a great quest to find out 
the answer of the universe a long, long time ago. Well, the Earth was created to find the, the question. question, but but it answer. started. What started everything was trying to find the answer, which was a really, 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 really long time ago. A group of people were like, "We're going to build the greatest supercomputer ever to answer, give us the answer to the universe, life, and everything in it." You want to you try that again? Life, life the, the universe, universe and, and everything. everything. And everything. It's very important in that order. And so they build the world's greatest computer, the universe's greatest computer, and they name it Deep Thought. And they're like, Deep Thought, the greatest computer ever. And Deep Thought's like, no, no, no. I'm not the greatest computer ever. I'm the second greatest. And they were like, but aren't you better than all of these other ones that exist? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, one day I will design one that will be even better than me. And thus I am the second. Anyway, so they're like, Deep Thought, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And Deep Thought's like, give me a sec. I'm going to think about it for a bajillion years. And then eventually when Deep Thought's going to give them the answer, there's this whole thing with philosophers being like, no, don't do this. <laughs> we won't have a job. Deep Thought gives them the answer, which is 42. And they're like, what the fuck? Spawns a whole new field of philosophy to find out what the question is. Yes, because he's like, you didn't ask me an actual question. So yeah, you don't know what the question is, which means the answer is meaningless. And they were like, well, how are we going to get the question? And he's like, I will design a great supercomputer that will find the answer to the question. The question to the answer. Yes, the question to the answer. And it turns out that supercomputer was Earth. And we were five minutes away before Earth got destroyed. We were five minutes away from finding out what the question to the answer to life, the universe, and everything was and then the Vogons destroyed it for an expressway and Arthur's like holy shit an expressway that was never built yes that that was a clerical era that wasn't even that didn't even need to be built Slardy Bartfar is rebuilding he's they're working on it he he originally designed the fjords of Norway he won an award he's very proud um and and then the mice are like no 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 because the mice are the ones that hired them to build the supercomputer that was earth and they're rebuilding and the mice are like no no no, we don't need you to rebuild earth and slardy is real like pissed off about it because he was gonna he was gonna work on the coast of africa this time it was gonna be all fjords baby <laughs> equatorial fjords <laughs> and the mice are like no no no, we don't need you to rebuild the earth uh this guy lived on earth so the question should be encoded in his brain so we'll just use him. And Arthur at first is like, yeah, absolutely. You can use my brain. And they're like, we need to take it apart. We need just your brain. And then we need to analyze it. And he's like, no, 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 I'm keeping it in my head. So then the, the mice are like, what are we going to tell everyone back home? They're waiting for a question. And they're like, what can we just make one up? And the one they settle on is how many roads does a man need to walk in, walk down in life? Which is... A properly philosophical question. A properly... And a fantastic... 42. They end up, like, getting chased by the police because Zaphod stole the Heart of Gold ship. They have a stand-down with two cops, which is a very fantastic scene because it's the cops being like we're actually pacifists pew 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 shooting you we don't want to do this it's hurting us more than it hurts you pew, 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 pew. and they're like just stop shooting us you don't have to shoot us and the idea is like the rhetoric of uh you can have a rhetoric of peace if you're the one holding the gun it's real easy it's real easy to be like no 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 i didn't want to do pew, 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 pew. um again apropos <laughs> for a lot of things um, and they end up escaping. They get back on the heart of gold. Nobody knows. Again, we don't know at this point what the, the question was. 
And Zaphod's like, let's get a bite to eat. We're all hungry. We'll go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. That's book one. Yep. That was a pretty concise summary, if I do say so myself. Thank you. And you made more points than I would have remembered to make. I I love the note you make, but deep down, all they really want is for someone to properly appreciate their poetry. (laughs) The Vogons, on top of being ugly, terrible bureaucrats. Are great at poetry. They are terrible at poetry. But they love it. it. They 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 are very into it. They kill people by reading them poetry. And yet Arthur was able to appreciate their poetry, which they still managed to want to kill him afterwards. He attempted to appreciate the poetry, but unfortunately the poetry... He interpreted it wrong. Yes. (laughs) And thus, (laughs) death. Book two opens with them getting attacked by the Vogon from book one, who has been sent to kill them because of a therapist that told him he needs to do this. Um, I don't and what do you remember? Because I'm, I'm thinking back and I don't remember a really fantastic reason why this therapist wanted him to kill the last people of Earth. Because it, what, he has a reason and I can't remember what it was. The Vogons are very, they need to finish everything. So their order was to kill, or was to destroy the planet, which would include everyone who was on Earth. And they go through such great lengths to be able to do this later books, too. So it was probably just like he felt like it wasn't complete and needed to keep going. But there was his therapist specifically, because he has that whole conversation with his therapist, who is also Zaphod's therapist. And the therapist is specifically manipulating him to do it. So, like, he wants to do it because you're right, he's a completionist. And not all of Earth is destroyed because Arthur Dent and Trillian yet live. Um, but there was there was a reason, like like a it was like a political conspiratorial reason that the therapist wanted it as well. Did it have to do with the question? Because like if yes, the Earth you was don't destroyed, need, yeah yeah yeah. You kind but of also question. yeah, you, you don't need psychology. Because it's in Arthur's dense head, head. So technically, as long as he lives, the question yes. is actually out there, and the mice needed to make sure that that did not happen. But also, you don't need psychologists. It's making the same point it does about the. Uh, philosophers in book one which is like people if they know what the meaning of life is and they don't need they won't need to pay as much money to the psychiatrists or psychologists and therapists Mm -hmm. so that's what it was so they're in the uh heart of gold ship and normally if they're getting attacked by a vogon ship they can just yeet on out of there with their improbability drive but no they can't because arthur tasks the computer to make an adequate (laughs) cup of tea like to the point where he described like getting tea from India, colonialism, and like all the things that goes into a good cup of British tea, and the computer literally shuts down and can do nothing. Um, and so they're getting attacked, but the ship won't move, everything's offline. And so Zaphod is one of the things we learn about Zaphod in this book is that there's a portion of his two brains, because Zaphod has two heads that he does not have access to and burned into his brain matter are the, his initials. So he knows that he did this to himself Um, and he doesn't know why, but he thinks it's because when he became president, they were going to scan his brains and he, whatever he was in that part of his brain that has been cauterized and uh, separated and inaccessible would have been something that would have that they he didn't want them to know would have prevented him from being eligible to be president but it means that every once in a while he gets ideas to do things and he himself 
does not know where the ideas came from. He now knows that it's from that weird sectioned off part of his brain and he hates it. He doesn't like it. And every time he gets one, he wants to kind of avoid it uh, now. But while they're getting attacked by Vogons, the shield that is up around the ship is like got 30 seconds left. He gets a impulse from the part of his brain he can't access to have a seance with one of his dead ancestors. And so they have a seance on the ship with one of his dead ancestors. And it's his great great grandfather, Zaphod Beetlebrox the fourth. Our Zaphod is Zaphod the zero, apparently because of some time fuckery. Makes sense. His great-great-grandfather basically spends the majority of the scene belittling him. Telling him that he is um, a fool for messing around and lobotomizing himself and cutting off part of his brain. How do you not remember the mission that we were all on? We all, we had a plan! And Zaphod remembers shit. And then he's like, your friends gallivanting about the universe with your dumb friends. Um, But Grandpapa decides to help him. And yeets Zaphod... Uh, off to a beach planet. Like, he's, he was on the ship getting attacked by the Vogons. All of a sudden, he's not on the ship. And he's on, a, like, on a, in a cafe on a beachside planet that, that's, like, all beaches. It's always, like, four o'clock golden hour. Like, it, it never gets dark. Um, and it's the planet where the headquarters for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is. And he's there. And he's found something in his pocket that he didn't expect to be there. But the book doesn't tell you what it is at first. Marvin is also on this planet with him. He doesn't realize that immediately. But he ends up, he gets another one of his brain blasts. And he's like, I need to go see some guy named Zarni Whoop. And so he goes to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy office. He ends up trying to find Zarni Whoop. Zarni Whoop is the head editor slash guy in charge of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He tries to go to his office. When he goes into his office, God, this is such a convoluted <laughs> set of stuff. He goes into this office. There's this weird ship that is attacking the office building of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He tasks Marvin with dealing with that like other robot ship thing. Marvin ends up like, I forgot exactly, but he like depresses the other computer yeah, into He a- talks to the other AI until it gives up. Eventually a portion of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy office just like shoots off and starts going in a different direction. He meets this guy, I forgot what the guy's name is, but there's this dude and he's like, I'm here uh, on behalf of Zarni Whoop and I have one job and I'll let you know what it is. And they crash on a planet and he basically is like, go out of the window, don't go out through the door of Zarni Whoop's office. So he crawls out through the window. He's on a weird planet. He ends up finding um, this. So he, he's landed on a planet called like Frogs something B. And it's. Frogstar B. Yeah. yeah Frogstar B. And it is the most terrible, awful, evil place on the planet because it has the perspective something. Infinite perspective vortex. Yes. The infinite perspective vortex, which is. A thing that will show you your place in the universe. It'll show you the entire universe and how minuscule and inconsequential you are. And it drives people crazy. Fantastic origin story of why it exists. It involves fairy bread or fairy cake. Highly recommend reading to figure out what the detail of that is because I'm not going (laughs) to go into it. But anyway, normally when people go into the the vortex, they go insane and their brain just goes... Because they can't comprehend how 
completely irrelevant they are. There's this fantastic voice that talks to Zaphod that has its body is off somewhere else. And it is just a fantastic interact. This is one of my favorite portions. This whole section of Zaphod is one of my favorite portions of this book. It's so good. The disembodied voice is trying to point out, it's like, see, aren't you so upset by how insignificant you are and all this other stuff? And Zaphod's just like, no, it seems like I'm pretty much the most important thing ever. And I, I just feel better. Like this makes me feel even better. And he just gets, the disembodied voice just gets so frustrated. It's, it's like, you're not supposed to, this has never happened before. I'm failing at my job. What is this? But he's also kind of happy because he liked Zaphod and he's kind of glad that he's not insane. He's not going insane. But anyway, the voice is basically like, you were supposed to go insane, so I you need to I'll give you a head start. You run off and the people that are gonna come deal with you, I'll keep them. I, I won't tell them immediately. So Zaphod runs off, he finds an like a giant warehouse with a bunch of a ships in it abandoned ships like dirty dusty and then he's happened to walking and he, he hears like a vibration and he finds a cord like a giant power cord that's still vibrating which means there's a ship that's on and he finds the ship that he goes to he goes inside and there's like robot people that are like please take your seats sir. and he goes and there's like a group of people just strapped into seats on this like uh and it's it's basically like a cruise liner that is where all the people are in stasis and like the the people on the ship have long nails that have curled in beards just like chaos energy and the computer keeps being like go back to your seat we're about to hand out coffee and biscuits or tea and biscuits and basically it is this ship full of people it was an intergalactic cruise ship and they stopped off on this planet to get a delivery of lemon-scented hand wipes that has never come. But they won't leave until they get the delivery of lemon-scented hand wipes. And every 20 years, the ship wakes the people back up on the, sh- the, the ship, gives them the tea and biscuits, and they just wake up screaming. And it happens while Zaphod is there, and all of the people are just screaming bloody murder. And you realize what has happened. And it's been like... 300 years and you're just sitting there like holy shit this is a nightmare those people are trapped and they fought literally argues with the ship where he's like the civilization that was here doesn't exist anymore you're never gonna get your stupid lemon scented hand wipes and they were like you don't know another civilization could crop up and then they'll make lemon scented hand wipes and we'll be out but until then when all the people wake up there's one particular guy who like sees Zaphod and is like Zaphod and uh and then later you see him again and his hair is cut and his nails are cut and basically this is Zarniwoop this is the guy who's in charge of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and this is a pocket universe none of this was real and basically, like, a lot of the office buildings in the Hitchhiker's office just have, like, little pocket universes. And Because there's a whole bit where somebody kept saying uh, Zarni Whoop was on an intergalactic uh, cruise in his office. And that's how it makes sense. But Zarni Whoop is like, come on, we've got to go do the thing we actually wanted to do. Where's your ship? And Zaphod's like, my ship? I, I, have, I have no idea where it is. And he's like, it's not in your pocket. And then in his pocket is a tiny little model of the Heart of Gold ship. And then it turns into the actual Heart of Gold ship. In the real universe. In the real universe. So yeah, so they they close this down and they're in the real universe now. And what you find out is during this entire period where Zaphod was in, uh, like, went to the beach planet, did this whole thing, uh, and that's why um, that when he was in the, the in- Infinite Perspective Vortex, it was he saw himself as the center of the universe because in this 
particular pocket universe. It was specifically designed for him to connect him with Zarniwoop, and thus he was. And so that he would survive it. And he would survive it. Like, and, That's why he had to go through the uh, window and on yes, the door. Because if he'd gone through the door, he would have left the pocket universe. But anyway, the entire time this was happening, Ford, Trillian, and uh, Arthur were just stuck in the actual Heart of Gold ship, which was now just in his pocket this whole time. But anyway, they get on the Heart of Gold. Zarniwoop is like, we gotta find the guy who rules the universe. That's what we've been doing this whole time. This is our goal. And Zephod is like, I don't want to do that. Ship, take us to the nearest place for a meal. And it it takes them to the restaurant at the end of the universe, which you've been waiting for this entire book because that's what they said at the the end of book one, and that's what the title of this book is. And the entire time you're like, I thought they were going to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And so halfway through the book at this point, they finally go. And it's basically the end of the universe. So originally, I thought it was going to be like at the farthest reaches of the universe. Like there was a point where the universe... No, it is timeline at the end of the universe, which is like the universe is about to implode and explode. And they made a little pocket, projected pocket restaurant where they just live through the end of the universe and people can book, they they take them back or forward through time. You have dinner. It's a spectacle. There's this really annoying MC guy who I heavily dislike, especially the way he's narrated in the audiobook. Oh, God, he's terrible. So they go to this restaurant. It's really posh. It's really fancy. Uh, There's a lot of hilarity ensuing between, like, the people who work there and our party of our gaggle of people. Um, Ford sees an old friend of his. It's the lead singer of the loudest band in the universe. Yes. Though, who is the dead guy, I believe. Who is, he is. He is. He has to he, be dead. For legal reasons. He has to be dead for a year. Dead for, yes. Yeah. This section of the book, uh, outside of them getting the dead guy's ship at the end of this, isn't super necessary plot-wise, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, except to tell you, the cow. <laughs> okay. So the cow. The cow. The cow is every vegan's nightmare, is what the cow is. (laughs) When they sit down for dinner, um, a cow walks up to them and it is pointing out to different parts of its body the best parts of itself that they should eat and they should request for their meal. And it is so happy and optimistic and and just be like... You should really, I've been really working out. I've been gorging myself for weeks, so my liver is particularly tender if you'd like yeah. the pate. It is such it is off-putting. So great. It's so great. And what it is, is there is the ethical issue, because it's the future, baby. We're, we're, we're in the future. We don't have to eat unethical meat no more. We breed meat that wants to be eaten, and thus there is no ethical conundrum. Yikes. Anyway, and because literally yeah, a waiter comes. Yes. Uh, a waiter comes and is it's like. It's a bit different when it's talking to you. It's really different. A waiter comes and is like, Would you like to look at the menu or would you like to meet today's special? And Zaphod's like, I'll meet the special. And everybody else is like, The fuck you mean? Meet the special. And the cow just comes out and he's like, Would you like. And then like Zaphod and Ford are like, We'd like the this piece of steak. And then it just comes out steaming. And you're just like, the cow's dead. How many cows are back there? Like, do they have a whole army of cows that just want to get... And it's one of those moments where Douglas is peeling back, or Adams, 
uh, is peeling back that layer and showing you like, because uh, I mean, even in today's society, we talk about like lab grown meat, like there's that whole thing to create meatballs that are actual meat, but it's just been cloned, removing the ethical uh, dilemma of it, you know, the idea of making meat uh fake meat that resembles meat as much as possible or 3d printed meat or 3d printed like all of that shit <laughs> and, and douglas is like <laughs> gals that want to be eaten but it, it like it feels on like apropos to the current conversation with like the ethics of the thing um and two characters conscientiously just don't eat it it's a great scene uh it's really interesting it is a bit for me, especially in the audiobook, the stupid MC guy who's like doing the whole thing takes away from the scene a little bit. Ironically, actually, the scene with the restaurant at the end of the universe is the least fun scene in the book, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. It really is. Like until you realize that Marvin's been waiting for them since like the dawn of time. Yes. So they, they end up like leaving, like the, the universe ends, they decide to, and they decide to leave before the actual end of the universe because they would like to get to the car, like the parking lot. They want to leave the parking garage before everyone else. Yes. And um, they end up, he, Zaphod gets a call and it's from someone who works here and it's Marvin and he's like, yo. I, you left me on Frog Star B. And it turns out that the restaurant at the end of the universe is on the remains of Frog Star B. But this is like billions of years into the future. So Marvin has literally just been chilling out on Frog Star B this whole time, waiting for him. And he's like, I'm in the car park. And they're like, What are you doing in the car park? And he's like, Parking cars. What else? He's a yeah, he's literally a valet. It's great. So Zaphod. Go and all of them go to the car park and they're looking for a new spaceship because Zaphod knows that the heart of gold uh, number one Zarni Whoop is in it um, and he doesn't he doesn't want to go find the guy who rules the universe he has no interest he doesn't want to do what the part of his brain that wants to go do this wants to do he's like fuck that part of my brain I don't like that guy um, so they decide to like steal a spaceship and they find there's a bunch of really cool ones and they end up finding this completely black, like just matte black on black on black ship. And Zaphod immediately is like, this is it. The coolest ship ever. They like steal into it. They start going off, but they realize they can't control the ship. It's just going in a specific direction, specifically into a sun. This is because it was the stunt spaceship of that dead lead singer we mentioned for the band who that is the loudest band in the universe. They are so loud that people do not listen to them on the planet that they are like, they, they perform on a planet, but then everybody else listens from somewhere else. And part of their performance on this particular planet that they're doing is flying this black stunt car into the sun of this particular planet to create a solar flare as part of the festivities. And that that's the, that's the ship that they're on. And they're like trying to get out of it and they find a teleport booth. But because the dead singer guy was just going to eat it into the sun, he's like, we don't need it. Wasn't it wasn't operational. So it's just this hysterical scene and they end up sort of getting it to work, but somebody needs to, someone needs to stay behind to operate the teleport booth. So everybody Whoever else will that be. Our poor boy, fucking Marvin. Like he hasn't been through enough. <laughs> like he's just like, Oh, I guess it would be me that has to stay here and just be... Mm. Marvin accepts 
death and his fate so many times, and yet he never he dies. He never dies. He really he's he is resilient as fuck. Um so Ford and Arthur get yeeted to um a spaceship, a weird spaceship. Um, and they discover that it is filled with like sarcophagi, like a bunch of basically like coffins and they hear joggers and then a bunch of the joggers get into the coffins and like go to sleep. And they realize this is like an arc of some sort that is like traveling people somewhere. And this one officer ends up finding them and is like, I have captors. And the captain is in a bath, like literally the deck of the ship just has a bath. He put, he put a bath on the bridge of the ship. And he's been in it for the past like a hundred years. Just, he's just been in it. And what it is, this ship is, is their planet that they are from, which was called, because there's the Gargafringians, and I think it was called Gargafringe, but anyway, the planet they were from, um, the world is going to end, so they were loading up all of their different, like, arcs with different groups of people to go out into space. And the first arc that went off was arc two. Arc one, ship one was supposed to be the doctors, the scholars, the really intelligent people. Arc three was the, the like construction workers, farmers, the, the like blue collars. And then number two was the hairstylists, yeah, middle management, hairstylists, phone cleaners, receptionists, travel agents, documentary crews, basically the entire service industry, the entire service industry. Um, and they were going to go first so that when they got to the new planet, everybody else would be able to get a nice haircut. And basically Arthur and Ford put together that this was a lie (laughs) that (laughs) their planet probably didn't get blown up. And it's true. Their planet just yeeted what they thought was a third of their, their worst third of the population. And then they undesirable, useless people. And they entered a era of great peace and prosperity that was eventually cut short due to a plague that came from unclean phones. What it's interesting to me is it really is a good commentary in society because we idealize a lot of the blue collar work, like miners, farmers, like uh, those are hard working. Like, like there's an idyllic like twist on those group of people. And then obviously like the doctors and the, the intellectuals, there's an, like they're on a pedestal. And then there's a lot of lack of respect for like people who are like hairstylists or like cleaners and just like, uh, like they're kind of in the fringes. You don't get a lot of stories in society about that. And then, uh, Adams is also like, but you need them. Don't eat them. Civilization dies without them. Like, doesn't work. And the planet, they end up crash landing on the planet that they're getting to. And as Ford and Arthur get yeeted onto this ship, it is literally like five minutes before they actually get to the planet they're supposed to get to. And they there's no like landing mechanism. They just crash. They aren't actually supposed to ever reach an actual planet. planet. No, they just end up crashing into a planet. <sighs> and it's Earth, babies! Uh, one of the things you learned is that when they got, when they got put in the teleportation thing, they ended up getting thrown too far back into the past. They were 2 million years ahead of time when like they were last not in a time space. So prior to them going to the restaurant at the end of the universe, they were 
two million years into the future of the point that they are now in. So when they land on the earth, it is idyllic. There is no people. There is no, like, there's nothing. And they don't initially realize it is the earth. At some point, we should we should also probably mention, um, the earth is only two million years, years old. Like, there is no 65 million years. All the dinosaur bones were, like, put there, like... It's only 2 million years old. So this actually does put them at the beginning of the earth. When they get there, they notice that, uh, like, they just walk around. And they leave the Golga Frenchins, like, pretty early. Like, those guys are just screaming and, like, causing a ruckus. So they, uh, Ford and Arthur end up, like... Well, they, they're trying very valiantly to create society and build things. However, they build stupid stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, but they I'm were trying to build both- that. Oh, before that. Yeah, I'm talking when they first... Because I thought like, they, were with, they were with them for a while, and then they got... They literally, like, day one, just walk off. And then they end I up coming back. Yeah, I don't blame them either. Get Like, leave. <laughs> leave my guys. Unfortunately, for, like, the stereotype of, like, why these people were sent off into, you know, the ends of the, the universe to leave, leave the original planet in peace without them... Um, they are pretty terrible people. Oh, they are not. They really are. They really are. So they abandon them immediately and they just start walking and like they're, they're rejuvenated by how nice everything is. They end up like crossing a river, Ford hunts and they get like pelts and stuff, but then they end up finding like a glacier and in the glacier is a signature and it says like Slarty Bartfart. And then, like, the year he created. And what they realize is these are the fjords of Norway. This is the original Earth that Slarty Bartfars won the award for. And they're like, holy shit, this is Earth. And then they go back to the Golga Frenchians. Because now that they know it's Earth, they know that the Earth is going to end in two million years. They go back to the Golga Frenchians to be like, hey, guys, the Earth is going to end in two million years. Have you done anything? Ford is literally like... How far have you gotten with fire? And they're having a town meeting. Middle management. Yeah, it's so bad. And they're like, uh, he's like, how far have you gotten with fire? And they were like, well, marketing, we we have to do research. How Do people want their fire uh, blue? Do they want it green? Do they want it inside their clothing? Where We need to answer these questions before we go into product development. And he's like, oh, okay, like... There was something he's asked about the wheel and they were like, well, what color do people want their wheels to be? Because they're like, we're having some technological issues with that. And he's like, it is literally the easiest shape. Yeah, because they were also debating it's like, we want a square wheel at some yeah, point, I think. It's hysterical. Um, and then there's this whole funny thing about money. They they decided leaves were currency, but there's too many leaves and thus everybody horrible like, inflation. Horrible inflation. So their their plan was to just cut down all the trees. Which would mean leaves are have greater value because there would be less of them. Terrible idea, very human, but a very modern human idea being imposed on uh, this prehistoric world. Hysterical, but there is also the Neanderthals on this planet, uh, and they call they keep calling them the caveman. And uh, Ford keeps being like, "But they don't live in caves. What are you talking about? They're like, but they're like they're obviously cavemen." Um, and the cavemen are very peaceful and they kind of help they they don't want to be messed with but they do like help arthur and uh ford out and they end up kind of becoming friends and what arthur and ford realize is that the cavemen are kind of dying out and while they're there arthur decides he's going to teach them to play scrabble at first i thought he was teaching them how to write or just read or communicate But he's not. He's trying to get them to play Scrabble. Um, well, and it was even better because, like, they they sucked at it obviously because they don't know what anything yeah. letters are. 
And yet that made the game more interesting to him yep. because it's like, ah, well, I guess how is that a word? I don't really know if that you made a lot of points. Really good job there. <laughs> I don't know how to counter that. I nope. guess you're going to win this game. Like that was the entirety of it. And then eventually like Ford's like, stop, what are you doing? But then one of the cavemen forms the words 42. And it is in this moment that Arthur and Ford realize that the Neanderthals, the cavemen that are dying out, were the original people that were supposed to be part of the supercomputer that was Earth. They were the original program. Yeah, they were part of the original co- programming. The Golga Frinchins that landed here, they are the people that became Arthur's humanity. That is the, the for these dumb people debating a square fucking wheel and, and like the marketing of fire that's the the predecessors of fucking humanity but which explains so much yeah but the cavemen they were supposed to be the original portion but the golga frinchins landing on the planet is displacing them and having them die, die off so the idea you get is that the the program was flawed before the vogons came before they destroyed shit the program had already gotten fucked up i wonder why that's why we get the question that we get? Because it's not Frenchie. the original. Pro- exactly, it's not the original people. It's Arthur's Golga Frenchian descendanted mind. Fucking useless. Yeah. Um, and basically, what happens is they realize that because Marvin had mentioned at the beginning of book two that he could see the question to the answer forty two written in Arthur's mind in his brave brain waves. Um, and so Ford and Arthur are like, I wonder if we can access my subconscious. And see what the question is. Definitely with that attitude and that inflection. <laughs> it is real cavalier. They're just like, I wonder if this will work. And so they, they put all of the letters in like a bag. And Arthur just picks one out at random. And it ends up spelling. What do you get when you multiply six and nine? <laughs> And then they run out of letters. Like, they can't continue it. That's just all the letters. That's all the letters. So that's... that's Absolutely. The idea of putting the letters back in the bag to continue the question, ridiculous. Ridiculous. And they just end, and uh, Ford is like, the universe doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. Nothing is serious. I'ma just live in the wilds. Like... This all is pointless. And Arthur, so like him and, and Arthur. Off again. Yeah. yeah, she does Ar- just leave. Arthur and uh, Ford go on a date with some Golga Frenchian ladies who were like, you got the shit earlier. Uh, and that's where their storyline ends, uh, which takes us to a guy in a hut and it's may or may not be raining outside. And he has. Well, that's the Zaphod. You start from his point of view, Zaphod. So. Zaphod eventually rejoins Zarni Woop, and him and Trillian, like, Zarni Woop is like, we're gonna go find the man who controls the universe. Um, and there's a cut, and it goes from Arthur and Ford to literally... Remember when I was talking about earlier where you're with a character and you're like, oh, I know what's going on, I'm following this plotline, and then all of a sudden you're somewhere else with a character you've never met before doing something completely random? This was one of those moments. One minute you're with Arthur and Ford, and they're on a date with some Golga Frenchins, uh, and then all of a sudden you're in a hut, and there's a man who doesn't know if it is raining or not raining outside, if anything exists outside. He, every day... He, like, takes a pencil and he, like, rubs the back end against things. And then sometimes he gets it right and he rubs the front end and it creates actual lines on it. Sometimes he talks to his cat. Um, 
sometimes he like he just thinks about stuff and he's just chill and kind of simple is the vibe you get and he's just vibing out and then a spaceship lands outside his hut and who comes out but Zaphod and Zarniwoo and Trillian and what you realize is you have just spent a couple of pages hanging around in the nonsense mind of the man who runs the universe. And they come in and Zarni Whoop is trying to grill this guy about like, how do you rule things? And what do you do about this? And the guy's like, does anything exist? Do you exist? How do I know you exist? Do I exist? How does anything? And then he's like, God only knows. And they're like, you believe in a higher power. And he's like, no, that's my cat's name. Another wonderful reference to philosophy. He's like, my cat is, I, I talk to my cat and maybe me and my cat exist, but anything else. And the idea is there is no conscious ruling force that drives the universe. The, the universe is ruled as much by any single one person as it is by insane chance. And if there was someone who ruled the universe in Adam's world, it's a guy who does not give a shit about ruling the universe and who doesn't even see, really... I, I see a little bit different, actually. Oh, bring your interpretation to the table. From my perspective of how I've always read it is that um, this man does rule, rule the universe because, like, a little bit later... People do come to like get his thoughts on things, and that's what they actually implement in, uh, like, as rule in the universe. Is that no one who actually wants to rule can rule, and that anyone who thinks that anything actually matters would make the worst decisions because they're too focused on the consequences of their actions instead of just, yes, this is this is it. It's like, this is just the answer. And obviously how can you not see it? I don't even see it. Like that. No one, like there's like the universe is ruled by chaos, which is kind of like what Ford's perspective is, but it's also just like, you kind of, you kind of can't actually be focusing on the universe if you want to be able to like actually exist in it, which is very fair. And honestly, it does connect nicely to the fact that this guy enjoys all the simple pleasures in his tiny little person, because he's never seen outside of like, he doesn't know outside of sometimes he looks out the window and he sees some black ships that comes around and they ask him questions about things. Um, but besides that, he has no interaction. Uh, and so there is a sense of like this disconnected, but like knowledgeable uh, presence, but also not knowledgeable at the same time. It's a really interesting scene. Anyway, Trillian and Zaphod very quickly realize they ain't going to get anything out of this interaction. So they leave. Uh, eventually, Zarni Whoop goes out. But they've left already. They take the ship and they go. And Zarni Whoop goes to, like, get them. And then when he turns around, the door to the hut is locked and closed. And so Zarni Whoop is literally just trapped on this planet in the middle of fucking nowhere. And the guy who rules the universe won't let him inside with him and his cat. Uh, and that's where Zarni Whoop's story... Especially because he's not convinced. The guy, that because he can no longer see Zarni Whoop, he's not actually convinced that he exists. So why would he open the door? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where book two ends. Ends. Yeah, that's that's the end of book two. Congrat c congratulations. Those those are. This is why you can't really read it as a book. You have to read the, the first three together. But also, it it really this one has so much more. Like that whole scene, like the the Neanderthals dying out. The whole scene with the man who runs the universe and them like going looking for like 
meaning, not even just meaning, but like, like Zarni Whoop wants to like, he's a, uh, he's management. He's an editor. Like he, he's here for like some, what should be like a grand uh, story. Uh, and he gets nothing out of it. And so it is those moments. in Zappos entire life mission, basically. Yeah. And, and they, they just get nothing out of it. And it, it's such a great scene. And it's really in these ways that book two is just so, for me, so much better in like in an emotionality. I will say that book one is a tighter plot and it's a little bit better paced there are a couple places in book two where it drags a little bit, like the restaurant at the end of the universe. That scene just lasts forever. <laughs> and it's like not much happens. And like I said, outside of like the cow, which is really great as like a thing to talk about, does not affect the plot of the book at all. And interestingly enough, it actually doesn't have that much additional context for the rest of the series either, because there's a lot of scenes in the series that's like, oh, well, it doesn't make sense at the time, but it makes sense later. Mm-hmm. It's it's not, it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter too much. And it's, it's just really odd because, like, I read some reviews where they were talking about book two as, like, a weaker narrative than book one, which I thought was bizarre because, for me, it was such a better reading experience. But it is, like, book one is so much tighter as a plot. There's quite a bit of downtime in book two. I actually just operate on the assumption that there is no plot. Like when you talk about like the plot of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, whether you're talking about one book or the other, like any of them, when I sit down to reread Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm reading the entire series. Like when I was rereading it earlier this year, um, I, I typically do read like chapters at a time. So like one or two chapters at a time. And then I like take a break. Um, which there is was the way no to read it. That's that's the way to sure. read. It. Don't, don't don't. Well, every book I read like that, but um, like for this one, it's like, oh, I guess that book ends. Now we're on to the next book. Like there is no break. There is no. This is the plot of this one. This is the plot of this one. Like that's why when I was saying is like, if you want me to tell you a brief telling of like what happens when, I would not be able to because it just it doesn't click as like a linear plot. Like not even like with the time jumps as like a, oh, well, it's not linear because it's time jumps. It just, nothing has to happen in the order that it's set to. So it's hard to remember, you know, from reading this back in childhood, it's hard to remember when things happen because none of it actually has to happen at any particular time. See, for me, the heart of book two is um, the Golga friendship. So book one for me is the earth was a supercomputer that that's book one that's it book one for me is the mice are the, the, the best thing ever. yeah yeah it, it's, and the worst thing like they're absolutely terrible terrible creatures so for me yeah book one is the earth was a supercomputer designed to find the question to the answer 42 uh designed by or for some mice that's book one the entire plot of book one has to do with that book two has two plots which is the golga friendships and the like some extra information the about the ruler series. of the universe and the you know, the universe yeah, that's it's, it. a, it's a history of earth and the history of the universe or basically that's that's book two well, when you put it like that though actually it does kind of make sense together yeah it, it does and so for me that's why like the plot does kind of and i can think about it because i'm thinking about it in those terms i, I think it's also because i read it as an adult for the first time so i'm seeing those things uh and then book three is 
the cricket wars. Like, yes. <laughs> which that one actually is a concise size. plot that takes place in a single book. And even that has a size that has nothing to do with the cricket wars. Yes, it definitely does have a size that have nothing to do with the cricket wars. But one thing that I will say is the cricket wars just is they're really, they're great. They're great, so great. But unlike stuff that happened in oh, book we didn't. We forgot. The reason that it was really important that they left uh, the restaurant early is because this was the one time that the pocket uh, universe failed and it actually did end. Oh, yes. It did end. The universe did fully end and the restaurant is no longer accessible. So it's a good time they went when they did because they wouldn't have been able to go again because that's how time works. It's like like going to a Broadway show and then it closes and that was the last performance. But... Also one that people can go back into the past and have seen. I don't know. It's great. Read the book. For me, the Cricket uh, Wars is the most separate to things that happen in book one and book two. Like, it is the least, because a lot of the stuff in book two is super connected to book one's, like, the actual, like, the entire part with the Golgafrinchens and, like, the fjords of Norway. Like, it's super, It's and it's connecting to that supercomputer thing, and you find out the question. It's not the actual question but you find out a question to the answer to the answer 42 and so it's a nice neat little cricket wars we're in new territory baby and it is excellent i really enjoyed uh book three it is wild the beast or math ship is crazy the the, sh- the sh- ship that's an italian bistro a slarty bar farts uh new digs new yeah. digs book three i'm actually proud of us we've gotten in an hour and a half we did a bunch of initial talking and thoughts we've gotten through two books i think i can get through the last one in half an hour ideally less um this book opens with arthur knocking about earth uh just chilling it's been five years since uh the end of book two him and ford they separated they haven't seen each other in a while uh Arthur's at the point now where he's forgetting how to speak. It's been a while since he talked. And, like, he wakes up and he's like, I don't know what to do anymore. He's like, so I'm, I'm going to try going mad. I'm just going to go mad. And then Ford pops in and starts talking to him. And Arthur's like, good job. I'm going mad very quickly. This is, we're on schedule, baby. <laughs> and basically, uh, Ford is like, there is eddies in the space-time continuum. And this is too much terminology for our boy Arthur. But basically, um, Ford has been using his... He has a little box where he can track whether there's, like, uh, ships coming by, but also, like, time energies. That's how he hitchhikes. And his little box has been telling him that there are anomalies in the space-time continuum. And uh, it's kind of centering around a certain point. Uh, and so he came to get Arthur so they can maybe get off prehistoric Earth. Uh, and they end up seeing a couch. And they're like, why is there a couch in the middle of prehistoric Earth? And he's like, we got to go to it. So they go to the couch. They touch the couch. All of a sudden, they drop down in the middle of a kick, a cricket match in England two days before the Earth ended in book one. Okay? And they're like, what? I'm so proud of that. <laughs> Why are we in England two days before the Earth ends? And while they're sitting there, 
Slotty Barkfarce is there. And they're like, what are you doing here? And at the end of the cricket match, while they're doing the awards and stuff, there's like these ashes that, from like an old cricket stump that they're handing to the winning team. It was Australia versus yeah, Britain. This is too much British his culture history. Like, yeah. I don't know cricket at all. They, they talk about wickets. I think it's an actual thing. No, it's an actual sport. <laughs> this, this, no, no, no. I mean, like, the ashes. I think the ashes oh. are an actual thing. I this is one of those things where it just references to things, but I'm, I'm here for it anyway. And Slotty about it fast at the end of the thing is like, give me the ashes for the cricket thing. Uh, you got to give it to me for the sake of the universe. And everybody's like, fuck. Also a couple of people had a really intense reaction to two men just appearing in the middle of the cricket field. Remember that just talk that away for later. Okay. Um, and while Slotty about fast is trying to get the ashes, uh, a white ship appears out of nowhere and out of it comes these white robots who are wearing cricket uniforms, holding cricket bats, batons, rackets. Yeah, they're bats. They're, they're cricket bats. They're like, yeah, we'll call it a bat. I don't exactly, but it's... Wait, I'm pretty sure it's cricket I'm pretty bats. Sure it's um, and they come and they just start demolishing what they're attacking people. They're hitting balls with like shits exploding and you're like, what the... F-? At first... This was one of those moments that I had to re-listen to it because at first I thought Slotty Barfars was with the cricket people. Like I thought he was like, give me the thing. And then like these guys appeared and then they got it for him. And then afterwards, like I had to re-listen to it and be like, okay, no, opposing forces, <laughs> not the same. So these robots come, they grab the ashes, they fuck shit up, they leave. And Slotty Barfars is like, we must go. And they're like, where's your ship? Oh, there's also a great thing. I'm not going to go into detail, but SEPs, somebody else's problem. You know when you see something and you're like, somebody has to deal with that, but it's not my problem, so you pretend you don't see it? So somebody else's problems as far as Hitchhiker's Guys of the Galaxy goes. Um, it is literally what it says. <clears throat> so what Maria missed over is that the entire time that they're watching the, the cricket match, uh, Ford is jumping around like a freaking psycho, uh, just like trying to get different angles. Or is it Zap Pod or Ford? Ford right? No, it's Ford. Yeah. He's jumping around trying to get different angles. He's definitely looking for something that no one else can see. And he, all he keeps saying is like, it's a, I think it's an SCP. So he, you can't actually see an SCP until it becomes your, your problem. problem. So it, the SCP was the white robot ship. But it was there the entire time. But no one uh, realized it because it didn't matter for them until it actually did matter. And then it started killing everyone. Which and then everybody could see it. It's one of my favorite parts because, like, it's just such good commentary because, like, you really can't ever know what someone else's problem is. Um, even if, like, you know, like, the overall, like, if you're special, like Ford, you might be able to perceive that something exists, but you have no idea anything about it or how bad it could be until it suddenly becomes your it's it's so good it's such a great and it's one of the best little concepts uh and and it was funny gina mentioned it during our uh dnd session on uh sunday it was great did i yeah you did um and then i commented I, you said uh well yeah that's somebody else's problem and i went scp yeah. uh and it was it was oh, so you referenced it yeah but but you you used it in a setting where was it like? Oh, it I've, I've done that many times and you just never had the context yeah, for it. Exactly. Probably. I now have the context. Uh, so I, I got the reference. Um, but anyway, uh, so Slotty Bot Frost is like, well, come, we must save the universe. And then he's like, let's go to my ship. And then his ship is what they thought was an Italian bistro. 
just behind like a thing. Well, it but is it, an Italian bistro. Yeah, it's it's a spaceship that looks like an Italian bistro on and the outside. Food, it is, and an on Italian the inside, bistro. except you can't eat the food or drink the no. wine. <laughs> uh, it's all it's all part of the programming. Yes, you cut away. They get in the ship. They go off to do stuff. You cut away to Zephod and Trillian in the Heart of Gold. Zephod is estrespressy depressy. He had a purpose in his life. Nothing came of it. And he's just lying around. And like Trillian's like, let me see if he, I'll take him to a really good vacation spot. Cause like a, a lot of book two, he's like, I just want to lie on a beach and see pretty girls. And so she's like, she finds him like a cool beach planet. He refuses to come out of the bathroom. Um, and then she takes him to like a beautiful mountain Vista place uh he refuses to even engage with it and so she's like fuck it i'm teleporting else like i am not dealing you are not interacting figure yourself out and she just teleports out she doesn't care where she's going she just teleports out and zaphod is left to his own devices and he's like what (laughs) She, she left and he's like trying to pretend that he doesn't miss her but he does we pause there that happens with him and trillian but we continue with uh, the guys on the Italian bistro ship. And basically, Slotty Botfarst now works for an agency that tries to deal with time anomalies, like where people f- messed up history and basically undid history from time traveling and messing around with it. And he now w- works for this agency because once Earth was no longer getting made, again, Magrathia isn't actually back online and building planets yet because people still aren't rich enough to do that. And so he was basically alive and just purposeless. So he started working for this other company or this other institution. And he now is charged with dealing with the cricket wars problem. And what you learn is that a very long time ago, (laughs) a long time ago, long time before earth was created, there was a planet called cricket and it's people, it's uh, atmosphere was surrounded by a dust cloud. So you couldn't see stars or the moon or, moons if you had moons or suns like you couldn't see anything you couldn't see the rest of the universe there was nothing it was just a blank sky and so it was a civilization of people that grew up not even aware that there was a rest of the universe to know they were isolated from it like they were just their own center of everything to the point where they didn't think of like we are alone in the universe there there was no term for that there also was no love songs about like going to the moon or the stars because it didn't exist it was like kissing above the grass like real simple happy people who like sports peace uh gardening they're they're uh (laughs) eco-friendly like real chill people and then one day out of nowhere a spaceship crashes into their planet, thus alerting them that there might be something out there. So they use the spaceship to reverse engineer their own spaceship in a year. And it's a bucket of bolts. Nobody thought this thing should have gone up into space. But they go up into space. They go outside of the dust cloud surrounding their planet and they see the rest of the universe and immediately decide we have to kill it. There can only be us. And thus starts the cricket wall where they create they suddenly become very technologically advanced they create a fleet of ships and these white robots with these like bats that would like with one swing could take down a building and with another swing could blow well, like, the robots are like super tall like, yes. i don't remember how tall they're they're huge yeah weapons of mass destruction and and the wars raged 2000 years cuz the 
they go on this thing, but you don't see the whole in, in our retelling that we get through Slardy Bart Forrest showing them like basically holograms that they get to be a part of. It's like, you know, in Harry Potter where like they go the, the memory pulley thing when you get to experience someone's memories, like they happened. Yeah. It's like a pensive, but it's a technology pensive. Basically the most important thing to know is that many worlds, uh, have versions of the game cricket based on the cricket wars and earth's is the most accurate and the most, uh, tasteless metaphorically horrific because yeah. of the rep- everything represents for the cricket. Wars. Yeah. And they just have no idea that it is. Of course it is. But the other thing is at the end of the cricket wars, when the rest of the universe, cause it was literally the rest of the universe against one planet, when they finally bring down the cricket planet, they have a trial to decide what is to be done. And they realize that, these people cannot like, they're never going to not want to kill everyone. So you can't just, so how are they can't, they don't want to just kill them. Cause that's a lot. So the judge going over the trial basically says, we're going to put you in a pocket universe. No, a slow time envelope. Yes. A slow time envelope, which will basically get your tech chart on. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I read this very quickly and they put you in a pocket, uh, slow time, slow time envelope, envelope, which basically, folds up their little sector of space, including where their sun is, uh, folds it up so that time moves very, very slowly. So even though it's been like 3 billion years since then, it's only been five years within the slow time envelope. And outside the location where the planet should be is a little asteroid with a wicket key on it uh a a gate a wicket gate on it and if you assemble all of these little things that make up the key to the wicket gate you can open the ashes on earth were part of it yes the ashes on earth there's also a like staff that ends up being a leg that marvin's just and then there's an arch that has the key points of cricket are the keys for the cricket for the wicket gate you got the little things all that jazz um but uh and so the what nobody realized, though, when they folded up the envelope and shoved them into the slow time. The reason why they chose the slow time envelope was so that it, it folds it up so that time passes very slowly. But the point was, is that to be fair to the people of Cricket, it would unfold after the end of the universe so that the pe- world of Cricket could succeed in being the only planet in the universe. So they were trying really hard to make it a fair punishment, which, to be fair, excellent. Excellent justice uh, system. Fantastic. Uh, But there was a cricket warship that had been presumed dead, but turned out to only be missing, that popped back up. One ship was just never pulled into the envelope. It just was still out there. Yeah, well, they... So it's been looking for all the keys. Yeah, they thought it was... Originally, they thought it was, they like, just gone, but then they realized, no, they escaped. Uh, And so they've been looking for all the different key pieces, and Sardi Barfars wants to keep them from getting all the different key pieces... Uh, actually, this is the perfect opportunity. I'm going to turn on my twinkle lights and see if it looks good. I haven't dealt with the like a night setting since I put them up. One moment. Ha-ha! Will said I needed twinkle lights on my bookshelf. Ta-da! I did it. Sorry about Forest is trying to keep the last warship of the cricket robots from getting all the pieces of the key and opening the slow time envelope and releasing the cricket wars upon the universe again. And one of the pieces of the key is going to be at a party. And it's a never-ending party that's been going on for, like, 
40 years. Have like, we skipped our Argar yet? No, no, no. Okay. Oh, we're about to. Because I thought, yeah, the, yes, the party well, was... They're gonna go to a party. But when they teleport to the party, Arthur is by himself somewhere else. He's not at a party. Because there's a whole debate between Ford and Saudi about Farce about why they're going to go to the party and what their goal is at the party. And so Arthur's expecting to be at a party. And he's, like, in a dark place. And when he, like, looks up, there's a giant monster. Like, just a giant, terrifying monster. And it's like, you are Think just- of just an amalgamation of every creature, every horror creature that you could possibly have. Like, I think there's parts of it that are, like, kind of scorpionish. Like, we're not even... That version of it yet? It's just, not that no, because like I have the perfect a giant it's, fly. It's kind of just like that necromancer turkey from Thanksgiving. <laughs> if it had a bunch of knives just poking yes. everywhere. At first, when he sees it, it's a giant fly, like just a giant black fly. Because uh, at first, he's just he sees a monster and he's freaking out, and it, it, the fly goes, "You weren't expecting to see me, were you?" And he's like, "Do I?" Arthur's like. It, it's vaguely recognizable and then he realizes it's a black fly and then it turns into a black rabbit and it's like oh perhaps this this form will uh pique your memory and he's like what the fuck is it and basically unbeknownst to poor arthur is he has been accidentally or intentionally but not in not, not really not in, he's he's been killing this one soul over and over and over again, all on accident. There was a fly. Every fly. life of the soul is killed by Arthur, Arthur Dent. Dent. Yes, including the bull petunias. But that one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that one isn't even Arthur's fault. It counts enough. He just saw Arthur. Arthur as was in died. the vicinity. Yes, and basically, like when Arthur was on prehistoric Earth, he uh, killed a rabbit and made a bag out of its skin. This is that rabbit. Um... <laughs> When they, <laughs> when when it, the bowl of petunias crashed into Magrathea, one of the last things it saw in its existence, and that's why it said not not again, not again was Arthur Dent's face, and it, it took a couple of in the life, window of the heart of gold, like a face peeking through the window of the heart of gold, and there was Arthur Dent, and it took a couple of its lives for it to become conscious of what was happening, because normally you're not conscious of what happened in your past lives, but Arthur killing it over and over again, it retained that core memory of hatred. And Arthur has just been, he, uh, this guy was also uh, a man at a cricket game with his wife who had a bad heart. The guy had a bad heart and his wife was like, what bad could happen at the cricket game? And then Arthur Dent and some other guy just appeared in the middle of the cricket field and gave him a heart attack. And so Arthur has just been accidentally, and even in the times where it is intentional, like he killed the rabbit. He didn't know it was that guy. He was just like, I'm a human. I need a rabbit. <laughs> like, I, food. <laughs> I would like a bag. If only the rabbit had talked to him and said, please don't eat me. Or if it had said, please eat me, he super wouldn't have listened. <laughs> yeah, and so it's all of these different things. And this guy has, he's built a temple in a mountain of hate towards Arthur Dent. In the middle- It is a citadel of hatred. Yes. In the middle of the citadel is a statue of Arthur, but it's grotesque. He's got like a bajillion arms, multiple feet, like several different bags. Because there's a running joke about Arthur's bags keep being the wrong bag. Like it's not the bag he had last. It's a different bag. And eventually the guy's like, and now I will kill you. And then this other time when you killed me and Arthur's like, I've never been there before. Like I've never been to that planet. And he's like, you haven't? And he's like, no, I don't even know what that planet is. And he, 
Uh, the guy's like, oh no, I pulled you too soon. Uh, but I'll kill you anyway, even though it will mess with the space-time continuum, because you have to- I don't care, I hate you yeah. And then he, like, he goes to kill Arthur, but in his rage, he brings down the entire mountain on himself. Arthur ends up escaping, and he's, like, falling, uh, and he's about to hit some rocks, and then he misses. And the thing that has been happening since book one is a refrain about, you learn how to fly by falling and missing the ground. And Arthur falls and misses the ground. And he, All you have to do to fly is throw yourself off the ground and miss. Yes. Arthur Arthur misses. And there's a nice little cute scene of Arthur bouncing around trying to and, and finding a bag from his trip to Athens, which has some the last of the Greek olive oil on the planet, which granted, if there's something you're taking into the universe with you and it's all that's left of Earth, some Greek olive oil ain't bad. <laughs> um anyway, and he ends up getting to the party. Uh, it's a party that's been raging on forever. Uh, not super important, except that a piece of the key is supposed to be here. And it's a, it's a great, a something of something. It's like a, it's the award that the, the, the guy gets the Rory award for saying. So I realized something I read slash listened to the censored version of this oh. in the original version. Yeah, America censored. How do you how do you Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has so much cursing? How do you even do that? It was censored in It's not the same book. Yeah, the third book in particular was censored quite a bit. Asshole was turned into uh knee biter. I mean that's the entire reason why I couldn't read it in school. Yeah, no, there's a ton of words in the third book that ends up getting changed. But one of the things they did is the original and Adams was hysterical with this because in the original version of this scene, this guy, this actor got an award for using the word fuck the most times uh, in the most profound way in a screenplay. Um, but in this version, it's not. They, they don't have the word fuck. It's Belgium. What? Yeah. For using the word Belgium... Uh, did, the most did Adams get to pick what words? He writes a whole thing about because Arthur kept being like, "Well, who cares about Belgium? It's just a tiny planet, like a tiny, like flat country, blah blah blah." And they're like, "Oh, why are you using? You're being so rude." And he goes on this whole thing about how words can have meaning outside of what you think their meaning is. And in this version of the universe, in this party, Belgium is like the worst curse word you could ever say. Like he goes on about it for a couple paragraphs. So like America was like, you have to take this word out and change it, Adams. And he was like, hold my beer. I got you. And it's <laughs> fucking hysterical, Gina. Like it made that scene even better knowing that he had to go yeah. back. Cause it's a really fun scene that I liked as it like just as it was and to go back and realize that that happened because of censorship and him because the entire point of like the idea is you can only say the word Belgium in really highbrow things like that's the only time it's appropriate to say it otherwise it's just incredibly rude and so it was him making a comment about censorship while he's getting censored <laughs> fucking excellent like goddamn, it was great I, it, I'm so glad I've read that today. Um, but anyway, uh, the cricket guys end up coming and stealing the thingy. Also, they like yeeted themselves in the middle of the heart of gold ship. Uh, like, like their spaceship was in the heart of gold like this, like they were in, and they stole the heart of gold 
drive probability drive and they took it and it, there's a it's a great scene with Seifod being like you're not taking it and they're like yes we are and he's like you're not taking it and they're like we're going to shoot you and he's like you're not gonna and they just shoot him <laughs> great scene um but anyway so they have the ashes they have the improbability drive they just took the whatever the thing was they got from the party um they end up leaving the party. They find Trillian at the party when she got, when she teleported off of the Heart of Gold ship, she ended up at this party. Uh, they take Trillian, Trillian, and, and they go back on the bistro. I haven't even explained the bistro math. Uh, so it's a, it looks like an Italian bistro because what they discovered is the most sophisticated math can only be done on a waiter's checkbook. Like on the napkins, yeah, like yeah, the the thing, and and like and that in ordering a meal, decide like every part. There's so many factors, and it's so complicated that that's the most advanced math that there is. And so they have a. So in order to make the calculations work, the computer has to be a big restaurant. Yeah, so literally, there's like robots pretending to order, and there's a point where like Arthur is sitting like messing with some chicken, and like he was like, I don't like the wine. And he's like, order new wine. That's part of the, the whole thing. It's hysterical. It's very great. But anyway, when Trillian gets on the ship, she immediately starts looking into things, uh, reading up. And it is when she's doing research that we learn about Hactar, which was a really long time ago before the cricket wars, there was another planet and its people were super, super aggro to the point where it, to keep themselves from... Society was not Sometimes progressing. Sometimes I forget that you know what video games are. I, do you know how many video games I've watched people do? <laughs> like, I literally have watched my brother and Steven play uh, Elden Ring. I know, but sometimes I just forget that you know what video games are and video game words. And I'm like, I'm like, because he said aggro, I'm like, does she mean? I'm like, oh, she actually did use it kind of correctly. <laughs> I am a multifaceted being of dimensions. I, there's layers here, people. Layers. Anyway, uh, the society has such a problem just sustaining itself that they decide that anyone who has a weapon for an hour a day has to punch a bag of potatoes to get rid of their uh, stress. And this is all, the transition of this is one of the best transitions in the book. It's so good. Arthur wants some potato chips. And Trillian has the potato chips. And there's a line that says, like, it ends with that scene where they're like, well, she probably needs the potato chips. And then the next line is, nothing in this world can really be solved by potatoes. And then we enter this entire explanation. And it's just, because what we're about to get is a history that's super necessary. But when you start with the line, nothing in the universe can adequately be solved by potatoes. You're once again like, Douglas, where the fuck are we going? What are we doing, Douglas? <laughs> Mr. Adams! Where? He always answers those questions he eventually. He, and he answered it beautifully. And it's, again, so, like, y you have to punch the... And it, it does work for, like, a couple of months <laughs> where they punch the potatoes for uh, an hour a day. But then somebody is like, it's quicker uh, to just shoot the potatoes. And then they want to go to war again. <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> and then everybody shoots their potatoes. <laughs> Which reinvigorates them to go to war. So they create a, a really smart computer. And they specifically create a computer that can feel. Um, and it, it, Which is hysterical. Because it's like one of the first really smart computers. Um, but because it can feel. They sh it's, they're the first civilization that shocks a computer. 
And what it is, is they would like the computer to create a bomb that is a really tiny bomb, but it will connect all the hearts of all the suns all over the universe to implode at the same time, basically turning the entire universe into an instantaneous supernova. Um, and the computer, it's called Hactar, is like, that seems counterproductive. I, I think we should think about this before we do it. So it designs it with a flaw so that when they detonate, this like group of people literally hit the button like to do the bomb and it doesn't work. And Hactar's like, I think we need to think about the ramifications of this. And they get so mad at Hactar for thinking about the ramifications that they pulverize him into a cloud of dust and just send him into space. Put that in your mind for later. Okay. I don't know. I think you've done enough foreshadowing about that one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Trillian is researching all of this. She's also researching um, the uh, cricket peoples. And basically, they all realize like the cricket robots have all the pieces. They go to the little asteroid on which the wicket gate is, and they're going to make the key. And they're trying, they, they can't stop them. So they're just sitting there watching it. Zaphod pops out and is like, everything is under control. It's not, they like knock him out. And everybody's like, why did they not just kill Zaphod? Like they consistently have just been, oh God, I forgot about the mattress swamp. I was wondering oh, if that was maybe in a different, in no, lower, in a no, no, following no. books. It's, it's earlier because that's how, like they come and they grab Mar Marvin. That's how they get Marvin. From the mattress, yeah. <sighs> Marvin so survives. There's a, there's a planet, there's a planet with intelligent mattresses as a dominant species. Which also brings back to make more sense as to why when Ford first landed on Earth, he thought cards were the dominant species. Because in a world where mattresses can be the sentient life form, it makes sense that cards would be for Earth. There's also, they're way more visible immediately than humans are. And every the whole world is basically built to accommodate them, so. On this mattress planet, there is a swamp, because mattresses are in, they live in swamps. And this one mattress happens they're to find- They're very aggressive. Yes. This one mattress happens to find a robot with just one leg walking around in a circle like this, going round and round. And it's Marvin, our boy Marvin, when he got yeeted off into the sun in the, the stunt ship. He went into the sun, but at the last minute managed to go away. And he, he did get some damage. Like he, his one leg is like fused and stuff like that. Um, so he now has a peg leg. And he's been on this planet now for like a couple of millennia. It's been a and he has a whole conversation with the mattress but the important part is not necessarily the conversation with the mattress even though it's hysterical read the book but that at the end of it a group a white ship appears and a bunch of cricket uh soldier robots come out and grab our boy marvin marvin and zaphod hook back up on the cricket uh ship in a bit but anyway there's the ongoing thing of the cricket robots keep not killing zaphod like, they, like, hit him, but he doesn't die, like, he, when they shoot him with a gun, and then they just keep knocking him out over and over and over again. Um, and so they open up, the cricket robots open up the envelope, envelope reappears, and they decide, sorry about far, is like, we we gotta go and we gotta talk to them. Our our job now is to go down to the planet of Cricket and have a conversation. And Trillian's like, let's go. And everybody else is like, no. Why would we do this? Zaphod's like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go over here. And Zaphod ends up on a sh the uh, ship that was the Cricket Peoples. And the person who is currently running it 
is Marvin. <laughs> like he's he's hooked in. He's kind of depressed. There's a funny conversation <laughs> between two cricket people where they're like, all the robots are kind of depressed and they're not really like fighting properly anymore. And it's because Marvin is like hacked into their mainframe and has just been like infecting the robot. And that's why they haven't killed Zay. Zayfod is literally like, oh, so you've saved my life like two times now. And Marvin's like, three times. Um, but anyway, on the planet Cricket, uh, they're like, the people are like, are you aliens? The Cricket, the Cricketers are like, are you aliens? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, I guess we have to shoot you, but we kind of don't want to. And this group of people who has been described to us up to this point as bloodthirsty, on site, like everybody is so terrified. It's one of the times that Adams actually tries to write the terror that the characters feel. It's still a bit funny, but he, he actively tries to get across that they are terrified. They have been taught to fear just the name of this. And like, at this point, Arthur's also terrified because he's just like, they created those. Ro- yeah. The, the ro- robots <laughs> were crazy. These guys are going to kill us on site. Why are we doing this? And the cricket people are just like, ah, do we really want to do this? And, Instead of being found, like, met with undiluted hatred, there's confusion, waffling, and our girl Trillian has kind of put the pieces together. And here's what it is. Hactar, that supercomputer that I mentioned earlier that got pulverized into a cloud of dust, he didn't just die. He ended up realizing that his purpose was to, that he fucked up his purpose. Trillian and Arthur end up having a conversation with him about this. But basically he tells them, my purpose was to create this bomb that was supposed to kill everything. And I fucked it up. I shouldn't have done that. My purpose was to do this. I messed up my own programming. And so I wanted to fulfill my mission, but also kind of revenge. Cause like, fuck everyone. Uh, but now he, afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and then he's like, but I'm kind of old and tired now. It's, it's been a while. I, I've kind of simmered down. But basically, he wrapped himself, his cloud, because even though he'd been pulverized into dust, the dust molecules had enough of a relationship with each other that it was still able to hold a sense of consciousness in itself, but also enact change in small ways. So it wrapped itself around an isolated planet in the middle of nowhere and isolated that planet. And then it created that ship that crash landed on the planet which also came with a blueprint for how to build a ship to get into space. And so it isolated a civilization to the point that that civilization thought they they were only things. uh, It's basically like what happened during the Renaissance when like, they were like, we are the center of the universe. And then other scientists were like, no, we are just a planet orbiting a sun. And like the human, like the Western human race just kind of went a little batshit because, Oh my God, our position in the universe, but like way worse. Um, because at least we saw the stars and we knew there was other, like there might be other things out there depending what they were. Um, but this place completely isolated thought they it, like, that was it. This is life crash lands a ship, which gets them to come out into space. And the reason it had to get them into space is it can't communicate super strongly with the people on the planet. But once it gets up into the atmosphere, the dust cloud is much more powerful and it can influence them more. So they end up like the ship comes up, into the atmosphere and it instills upon them incredible xenophobia, (laughs) like just oodles of xenophobia. Um, And 
gives them the technology to create the robots, create the warships, and it go to war and then recreate the ultimate weapon, the that bomb, the supernova bomb. While in the slow time envelope, they tried to create the bomb on um, the planet, but they didn't because they asked Trillian a question where they were like, you know, if we actually do this, are we going to be truly alone in the universe? And it is in that moment that she realizes they don't realize that they're going to blow up as well. Like, so they can't be, and that's what really sells it to her is they cannot have done everything they've done and also be dumb enough to real, not realize that they're going to blow up as well. And like their idyllic way of life. But basically while in the slow time envelope, uh, the supercomputer dust cloud, Hactar's control of them has been gone. And so They've just kind of reverted back to the idyllic, chill peoples. Gardening. Gardening. They like sports. And they're also like, you know, we really like sports. And we'd like to do like some sport competition with other galaxies. And if we like destroy them, we can't really do that. Um, and so that's when they have a whole conversation with Hector. And Hector's basically like, ah, I give up. I, uh. I'll just, you guys can just kill me. It's all good. But in Hactar's dying message, he said, I have fulfilled my purpose. Bye. Deuces. And everybody's like, oh, wow. I wonder how he fulfilled his final purpose. Well, everybody goes off. And one of the only things that survives the uh, key getting made and destroyed is the ashes and uh, that they originally got on earth during that cricket game and arthur is like i want to take these ashes back and give it back to the british people part of this is arthur wants a little bit of a hero complex moment he wants to go back and be lauded as a hero it doesn't work for him uh but he goes back to the to earth and he's like i brought the ashes nobody's listening to him because they they literally brought it back like two minutes after the ashes originally been taken and again i don't know if you remember but like a group of crazy robots just destroyed the cricket field and there's a bunch of dead people. And so Arthur's just like, I've done it. I've brought it back. <laughs> I've saved the universe. And they were like, who the fuck are you? We do not care. And while he's there, he's like, wow, I have always wanted to bowl a cricket thing. I don't know the terminology here, but he's like, oh, I've always wanted to do a bowl on this <laughs> field. And uh, he like reaches into his bag and there is a red like cricket sized ball in his bag. And he's been carrying it around for like um, a minute. Uh, it He realizes it appeared in his bag. He puts it together. But anyway, he has this ball and he's like, perfect. I, I'll just, I'll do a run and I'll throw the thing. And he starts running, getting ready to like throw the, the ball. And then as he's doing it, he realizes there's someone standing there with a, a wicket. It was one of the. It was one of the robots. Yeah, it's one of the robots, but they're holding a bat, and and it's gonna hit. And he's like, "Oh, perfect! This will be a real simulation." And then he realizes it's one of the robots, and he's like, "Oh my god! If that's one of the robots, then this has to be important." And then he realizes that the ball appeared when Hactar was telling him and Trillian that he had given up on the plan. We hadn't. He made because he mentions that he made a few things himself. While the cricketers had tried to make their own version of this bomb and it was a terrible one and it didn't work, Hactar made his own version, put it in Arthur's bag for Arthur to do on this field. Exactly. Hactar was thinking, like, Arthur's in 2023, Hactar's in 2080, baby. He's far ahead. <laughs> um, but at the last second, Arthur realizes, oh, man, 
this is this is the supernova bomb. I'm about to destroy the entire universe. This is what Hactar meant when he was like, I completed my purpose. Like, but luckily the bag that he brought from Greece trips him and he ends up falling, but then he misses the ground. And he Because he's learned to fly. Because he's learned to fly. Connection to earlier scene. He flies up into the air. He like does a turny thing. He comes back. He grabs the bat from the cricket uh, robot. He lobs its head off, and the Earth isn't killed. Um, and after the universe he, isn't killed. Yeah, the universe isn't killed in, in, along with Earth. But I mean, Earth is going to get killed in two days. So this is the last time he's going to see Earth. We think, apparently, in book four, it there's. <sighs> You know, <laughs> welcome to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is this the last time you're going to hear about something? Probably not. And so then everybody's like, we're just going to find a nice, quiet, idyllic world to put Arthur on so he can live and be chill. <laughs> and while they're looking for a nice, quiet, idyllic world to put Arthur on, they stumble upon a ship which had a reporter on it. And this reporter is like half mad. And basically, he had been at a trial and they gave one of the people at the trial a truth serum but they accidentally gave him too much truth serum the reason so much happened in the third book listen i could not believe i had 20 minutes left and this entire section was still about to happen i was like what the fuck is happening <laughs> like so much happens and the book when you're listening to it standard time is like five and a half hours so for me it was like three and a half hours holy shit so much happened in this book but anyway um, so they're talking to the, uh, reporter and he's like, yeah, they gave the guy too much truth serum. Uh, it's because the doctor got jostled because some white robots in cricket outfits came and stole the judge's, like, gavel of truth or whatever it was. And, and you're like, oh, that's the other thing that the cricket, like, ah, because earlier when they're naming the different items that turn into the cricket, uh, into the key, there was one, and you're like, I don't remember that one. It never got mentioned. He was saving it for this moment. So anyway, when they came and did that, they jostled the doctor who ended up giving the guy too much truth serum, so much truth serum. And then they told him, uh, we need you, do you swear to speak the truth, all the truth and nothing but the truth? And the guy just said everything, the truth of the entire universe, all the stuff. And it was so crazy. They had to lock him in a room because it was it was making other people crazy. Like the reporter's half crazy. But he, as a reporter, chose to leave early. Um, and so that's how he, they, he got out of there. And so then Arthur's like, maybe he knows the answer to the question 42. Or maybe he knows the question to the answer 42. So they go to the place. They find the guy. By the time they find him, his name's like Pratt or Prack. By the time they find Prack, he's chill. Like he's literally just like, hey, guys. I, I said all the things. There was a lot less than you think there would have been. And they were like, well, do you remember the answer, the question to the answer 42 to life? The universe and everything. Uh, and he's like, nope. I don't remember most of it. I remember a lot of weird shit about frogs. A lot of weird, you would not believe. Let's go see some fucking frogs, guys. Um, and then they end up introducing themselves and Arthur's like, yeah, I'm Arthur Dent. And he just dies laughing every time he sees Arthur from this point he just ends up just laughing hysterically to the point where it's not good for his health but at the last minute before he dies he calls Arthur in and he tells him a story about the planet that he was from where there was the plains the hills people 
and the plains people and they would go to war every time because like Arthur's ship went over the sign and anytime there was a sign from the gods it was a sign for these two groups of people to go to war against each other and every time they went to war against each other they fought in the forest and it ended up killing tons of the forest people um and Arthur's ship passing um it's not Arthur's ship but he was in the ship um passing is what started like one of the last wars and Prack is one of the forest people. Um, and he's telling him the story and Arthur doesn't understand the importance of this at this exact moment. But basically at the end of that whole story, Prack basically says, you can never know the answer and the question at the same time in the universe. Like if the question is known, you will never know the answer. If the answer is known, you will never know the question. And then they stick Arthur on the planet Cricket because it's nice and idyllic now. And Arthur learns how to speak bird and then is disappointed at how dull bird is and realizes that once you know how to speak bird, you're just annoyed by conversations birds are having all the time. All the time. That's what I remember of book three. <laughs> oh, you forgot the most important part. In both book two and book three, there is one character... Um, he's immortal. What's his face? I don't know his name. Terrible with names. But there's one character who is immortal, who has made it his life's mission to insult everyone in the universe in chronological, in, no, in alphabetical order. And that's it. That, that That's his whole purpose. What is great about this, and Gina talked about it in her six pages of notes, is that this character is so crippled by being alive so long and is so inundated with boredom that to give meaning to his life it is to insult every because like that's you constantly oh and he has a space time shift to make him be able to do it that's why he appears in both book two and book three Sorry. is because he realized he insulted him on arthur and on prehistoric earth and then he insults him again on in uh book three and he's like ah i already did you what's the purpose of my life anymore so hysterical and it's, you're it's a- saying though um, but it, it, he constantly, because there will always be new people born and old people to do, his life now has purpose. Where being immortal without this purpose, he had nothing. Um, and so immortality is worth nothing unless you have something to give it meaning. Uh, you know, humanity, we struggle so much. <laughs> and sometimes your purpose is as simple as telling people they're idiots yep. for all of eternity. Um yeah. And it was never personal insult. He just never. had a list that he would just like read through. This book series is commenting a lot about a lot of different things. Like there's some consumerism things. Um, there's a whole point about uh, shoe, like the shoe event horizon, which happens in book two. I don't remember that. Yeah. There's so much. There's so much. You can't, you, I, we could not go into while talking about all three books, all of the different things that he is commenting on. Um, There's commentary on consumerism, bureaucracy, the need to have meaning in life. Philosophy and technology too. Lots of philosophy and technology, um, how we relate to things that are different to us and how we like interact with things. Uh, History and recontextualizing history from the future. Uh, it, It discusses that. So there's a lot of things that this is going into. And like, honestly, we can't go into detail. Again, we haven't touched half of the shit that was in Gina's thing, mainly because plot. Uh, and also because there's just not enough time to go over all of the things. It is so rich. And like I said, for me, book two and book three are stronger because it has more of those dark moments. 
where I'm horrified. Book one, I was never really horrified. Uh, book one's the teeth of the first scene, I imagine, would be sharper if you hadn't watched the movie and knew what was going to happen. You remember the scene you were talking about when they're in the bar and they're they're talking about like the end of the world and people are reacting. I'm not a good judge of that because uh, I had a very different perspective about a lot of things. I was just thinking, I like I was reading them, thinking like, ah, oh, all you people are so stupid. Like that was childhood Gina. She was a bit of an asshole. Yeah, but I think for me, because I knew the context of the movie and like what was going to happen with the plot, the the what could have been a dark opening scene wasn't as dark for me in that first one. Well, the opening scene is him just laying in front of his house so the bulldozer can't come. And then he convinces, he he argues, Ford argues with the project manager to lie on the, on the ground in front of Arthur's uh, house instead of Ford so that Arthur can go have a drink with him at the bar and the house will safely not be destroyed because the manager's in, in the way instead. Then he just gets up and leaves, but you know. The thing is, it is really, it has a lot of wit to it. Um, and it definitely is when Will and I read Terry Pratchett's Guards, 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 one of the things Will commented on was it was a bit too whimsical for him. And I think he would handle this better than Guards, 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 because this does have more meat, like, as far as the commentary and the like concepts it's playing with, it's much, it's much more direct guards, guards, guards is a bit more abstract. It, it's that same like bizarre British humor and a bit of a lot of absurdism, um, which is why I draw that connection. Um, but I think this would be like, he would be able to sink his teeth into it a bit more where that was harder for him to do. Similarly, where I think you would, you do respond really well to this uh, series, but you might not have the, as, cause like I loved guards, guards, guards. Um, I hate you saying that. I know. I'm sorry. GGG. Uh, and um, so I don't know. I think you would be a little bit more to where Will was with that book, but I'm not sure. I'd be interested in seeing that. I mean, to put it, to put it in perspective, you don't like this character, this book series because like the characters are too distant. That's one of the reasons I love it so much is because I didn't have to care about the characters. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think you would like that book because it, 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 in the exact same way, the characters are super distant. It just is because it's just one book instead of three that, because like, you're really right. You have to read all three of these to really get the whole concept with that one. It's just one nice short begin to end tale and the plot is more cohesive. It does the thing where there's weird asides, but it is more cohesive, which worked for me in a shorter setting. Um, and it is very distant. So as far as that goes, I think you would enjoy it. But I, it's not, it doesn't have as much of, because it is making commentary, uh, especially on a lot of fantasy tropes, where this is making commentary on a lot of like sci-fi tropes. Um, so I would be interested in you reading that book and seeing how you feel about it. But we'll see. I've gone on a tangent. Anyway. It's a really smart, fun book series. I I would recommend it, but I would recommend reading it in small chunks when you can digest what you just read. Read the book first. Like I, I am going to borrow the book, the actual physical book from my brother and over bed for the next few weeks, I'm just going to read a couple pages or a chapter a night so that I can slowly and with a bit more context, enjoy this because it was really hard shoving it all down at once because as you saw with the third book so much shit fucking happens 
It is one of my most beloved series, though, and I am so happy that I can miss Maria to do it with me. Anyway, uh, I think that's it. We are now two hours and 29 minutes. I'm so glad we started when we did and not at seven. <laughs> so thank you for watching this video, guys. Bye.